Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the Soil Health Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today we're going to have a discussion with Minnesota farmer John Stevens of Maple Grove Farm. We're going to talk to him about his journey into soil health and what he's learned with it. John, welcome to the Dirt Rich Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We're excited to learn a little bit about what you're doing. I know you got a lot going on over there, but would you mind starting with just a farm overview and then maybe going back into your farm history and how you and your family got into what you're doing today? Yeah, we're we're up to 700 acres this year, kind of a mix. Uh, this year, we're going to be a lot of corn and beans just because of markets, but we're, we're bringing the beef cattle back too because of that market. <laughs> so it's corn, beans, hay, dabbling with the little small grains and then reestablishing cattle. We were dairy farm and then we, uh, we got rid of the cows in 03 and uh, thought then at that point we'd be row croppers. And a couple decades later, you're like, you know, we missed the value of the cows around. And dad enjoys them quite a bit too. It, sure, uh, sure. He's always beating me to chores. Um, when you say we, is it is it you and your dad that farm together, or there are some other farm family members as well? Uh, me and my wife, and then and then dad, and then uh, you know my mom and my brothers help if I ask for help. But for the sure. for the most part, it's it's me, and then if I need help, it's dad, then wife, okay. then brother. Sure. Uh, anybody will chip in if you ask for help. But I try and do it myself. I I don't know if it's a well, it's a it's a control free thing. You have to. <laughs> You know, you got a lot riding on your shoulders nowadays and you need to, everything has to turn out. And so you'd hate to have something not turn out when somebody else did it. Sure, sure. And you talked about the dairy a little bit, but maybe give a, a bit of a history as to where, how you guys ended up where you're at and the farming uh, history and progression to where you are today. Uh, yeah. So in 03, we sold the cows and then I went to the cities for work uh, and then we were going to be just a normal row crop farm. And, and at that time I was only running a few acres for myself and uh, trying to find, you know, my way in the normal world. And then um, I was working for uh, like dad and several neighbors, you know, doing their planting, their tillage, their chopping and, and, and then working for a few of them guys, milking cows and stuff too. And then in 2010, we started to pick up a few more acres on our own. We kind of talked to dad and like, well, you know, you're going to have to start to retire if we're ever going to take this over. So we started doing plans to, to buy out mom and dad, uh, buy enough of the land out. So then we could then farm and, and they wouldn't have to. And we started to dabble a little bit into no-till. And then 2014 came, and that was a notoriously horrible spring. And the only way we could get stuff planted was no-till. Um, it wasn't like, yeah, I'm going to be a no-tiller. It was out of desperation, we're, we're just going to put this crop in no-till. And we kind of had some confidence. We're kind of like, hey, wait a minute, for two years in a row, uh, we did a little bit of soybean side-by-side -side with conventional till. And saw no yield drag, but we saw the labor saving. And because before that, or even during the same time period, you know, you're you're working road construction, 
and you'd either schedule a day off or, or nights and weekends you'd work at the farm and with the tillage, you spent all that time doing the tillage and then come time to plant and something happens and you're like, yeah, if I would have just planted that whole time, I'd be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so 2014 come, we get the crop in horrible, horrible spring, uh, September 11th, I believe, killing frost. Uh, just just not a great year, except at the same time for us personally, it was an okay year. Our first year of 48 bushel beans on a field. The rest of the fields of beans did pretty okay. And I remember some of the neighbors just being livid at the yield they got, and the corn did average. And you're thinking, you know, what the heck? How, how is this possible? How, how could this work? On the worst year ever, we no-tilled and it was halfway successful. So then in 2015, we did it again, but then we built a strip-till bar and brought that into play. And boy, that that lit the ground on fire. And that strip-till, that took care of a lot of questionable spots. And in our soil, I always joke that if you wanted to pour a concrete slab, you'd go take some of our soil, our topsoil, put it down where you're going to put the slab pack it, and then put the concrete you'll have a very solid base not high in clay like on a soil test the cecs are very low so people are deceived how sandy it might be but it takes a one good driving rain and that soil's crusted over and so the strip till would rip that slot and it would take all season for that slot to heal which now every time we had a rain that water would just poof percolate right into the profile so immediately we saw just just drastic reduction of runoff. And I'm like, oh, you know, there's, I'm still not soil health at this time. At this time, I'm still conventionally tillage thinking. You know, we, we still had the moldboard plow kind of working on some ground at this time. Um, but at the same time, I've got these people talking to me about cover crops. And it's just like, what? I don't know. We started to dabble in, in the first year we, we bought all this seed and we put all this cover crop out there and hardly any of it grew. And we're like, oh no, that's, that, that was a failure. So, it, and so people are telling me about cover crops and I wasn't quite getting it. it the, the whole soil health premise, I hadn't quite found the social media of, of soil health yet and all them resources out there. So it was still, I was still that ingrained, it don't work here, I'm too far north, I'm too cold, too wet kind of deal. And and the first time we tried covers, you threw all this seed out there and you, you've seen these pictures of these guys down in Missouri and you're just like, hey, next spring, I want six foot tall cover crops to roll down. The reality of my location set in next spring when winter rye was four inches tall mm-hmm. uh, or or nothing. There, there was nothing for a couple years that overwintered. And <laughs> it's like, okay, this this is really, what's the point uh, at that time? But we kept playing with cover crops and we kept playing with no-till and strip-till all at the same time. And it wasn't until like 17 and 18 things really started to click 
when did you start playing with some of those things? Was that back in 15, 16, kind of right after that first year of no-till or strip-till? Yeah, 14, 15, we, we started to dabble with one little field of cover crops. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of funny because, you know, God bless the NRCS folks, but they, they were kind of new at this as well. And we're trying to figure it out. And there's only a couple of us farmers here trying it. So there wasn't much to fall back on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then in 18... Jay Fear was at the farm and he said, Hey, this, I pulled up a chunk of winter rye and I said, look at this little tiny plant. I don't know. And, you know, some people might call it a failure to me. It's a success because there's enough plant here to, to stop erosion and runoff. And I thought Jay was going to have a stroke. He's grabbing his chest like a failure. He just went, he's like, this is a great success. This thing's four weeks old. For four weeks, this thing's pumping carbon and it's building roots and it's adding life. And you're like, oh, well, now it kind of, we, looking back, we didn't have as much failures as we thought. Um, one of the failures that I did have was the fall of 17, the summer of 17. So in soybeans, I got so mad because in soybeans, we'd always try cover crops. Soybeans, except we had no season soybeans we've already by the time we're combining soybeans we've already had a couple killing frosts and i thought ah god you know it it's so frustrating to throw them seeds out there and see these little tiny plants and then the next killing frost comes and you're done so i went out in midsummer and threw out oats and radish and vetch and the beans were big and bushy it was late july and wouldn't you know they all took off they all took off and by by late season, when when the canopy is just starting to turn yellow, you had vetch up and growing along the canopy. So the vetch was growing across the canopy of the soybeans, and I'm like, nice. And then it came time to combine, and all that oat lived. Now you had this eight inch tall mat of oat grass. That part of you was thinking, any killing frost now, that's going to go away. And of course, we didn't get the killing frost. We got warm weather. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, oh. And in the mornings, there would be so much dew inside that green mat. And it was in the corn stover. So the root, you had your sickle guard. It would, all that hair, all that grass was kind of laying down and interwoven to itself. It wasn't a nice standing up. It was this tall, wispy. So it would just wrap around the guard tip to not get in the sickle. And then it starts dragging residue underneath the co- underneath the bean head. Mm. Ugh, it was miserable. You had to wait to the end of the day when it was hot and dry. And then it held so much condensation that the beans would be wet till the end of the day. Um, so I, I learned on that one, like, nope, on beans, let's just stick the simple winter rye and a follow-up, you know, the next spring with something else. Like corn, 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 we learned... So in the beginning, we were kind of scared of corn because on the conventional side, you're always told that any wisp of competition in corn is going to hurt your yield. And here we are throwing pounds of seed, 40 pounds to the acre of this mix of species, and we're hoping not to hurt yield. Like, like this makes no sense to us. It, it Goes against everything we've been taught. So we we started late. We'd go in as late as we could, and and spread it into the corn. 
Um, but it ended up being the same thing. By the time the corn canopy went away, there wasn't enough season left for it to do anything. So we kept pushing sooner and sooner. And the one year we ended up going out there at, you know, boot high, very, very late June and spreading radish and oat grass and a, a vetch and some Italian rye grass. And uh, I think that would have been about it. A very basic simple cover mix. And that was the fall of 18. Um, stunningly gorgeous. By the time we came to do harvest, I can remember um, Pioneer, the agronomist from Pioneer, Joe was out there in the seed dealer, and he was just laughing because you had these massive, big vegetative leaves from the radish and this green mat, and the yield was still, for our farm, phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And it, it just defied all logic. And so we're like, okay, we're on to something here. Three years in a row between strip-till, no-till, and covers, and then we advanced our fertility program, running a very managed placement and timing, but very reduced amount. And three years in a row, we had stupendous. So when in that process did you start to think, okay, now this, because you said it started off as more of a management decision of either necessity or financial, not necessarily soil health. And where yeah. in this process was it starting to click? Okay, maybe there's something happening here in my soils or something that this, <laughs> this stuff is affecting that's not just, you know, necessity or financial benefit. In 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 2018, um, one, a na- the neighbor was, we were doing a, a corn yield checks and they said, you know, we, what are you doing? Because they had our fertility program for the year validation of the seed and the, and the hybrid and they're like what what are you doing something is working here look at your test plots and i'm like yeah i don't know what but something is working here it doesn't make sense to me and and then another time there's a many little steps along during that 2018 year a lot of light bulbs kind of went off to like look at what's happening mm-hmm. um because we had a four inch rain event right ahead of needing to do second pass in soybean herbicide. And within a couple of days, I went out and did, did the herbicide. My tires were wet. Historically, on that field, if that was conventional till, it would have been two weeks after a four-inch rain before I would have even dared to go out there. You would have been stuck 10 times over. And here I'm driving through this field. Two days later, my tires are wet, but not a, not a lick of mud coming up, not leaving any ruts. And a few, I got a few texts on my phone from neighbors driving by, like, what are you doing? You know? And then a couple days later, or like literally the next week, we had a five-inch rain event in, within several hours. Yeah, it's gully washer. And I, I told one neighbor as a joke, like, I'm going to go side dress corn on Monday. And this was like Saturday. I said, yeah, Monday, I got to start side dressing corn. And they laughed, you know, let us know when you get stuck. We'll come pull you out. <laughs> yeah. And, and come Monday, I walked the field and I thought, I can do this. So I started side dressing corn and it was like, what the heck? Yeah. And, and then uh, we noticed that uh, we were using a lot less PK and sulfur with the strip till and still growing better crops. So then you start asking yourself all these questions. And then in 17 and 18, that's when I really, all these little tiny things are you're noticing these little changes. Like, wait a minute, I spent my whole childhood stuck in this spot. 
And now I'm driving through after a rain event and I'm, I'm barely making a little impression. Mm-hmm. All these little things, I'm, I'm getting to the field sooner than I would have if I was doing tillage. I don't have to, I, I don't have to get myself unstuck with with the soil finisher. Uh, all these little things. So then I started reaching out. That's when I got to social media, and, and really started looking out. And then on my little YouTube channel, you'd start to have people comment like, "Have you heard of this guy or this guy?" And so you're like, "No." And so you you look for them other resources and. Pretty soon you've entered this community of all these wonderfully nice people that are glad to give you information. And it, it, it just snowballed. Then it's like, okay, now we have to get cattle back because we, we, we remember the value of cattle. Sure. With, with cattle, we cannot have a failure because the cattle can always make it up. Mm-hmm. And animal unit monthly or animal credits – can always make a really good cash flow on the farm. And with 3 million people right down the road from us, I only need a couple of them to buy a steer to, to make money. I don't have to feed all 3 million. And, and so, yeah, there's a, a lot of little things. And you, now it's just like, what the heck was I thinking? You know, I, ah, I should have went back more. But the last couple of years then we've been setting ourselves up so every spring, we're set up with hay ground and winter rye. So now this year, corn and beans are really high. So we can simply burn them back. We can put in corn and beans. But if corn and beans are just terrible on the market, we've already got small grains and hay established on some of them fields. So you're trying to just set yourself up for that emergency um kind of variance adaptability to markets kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds exactly like you're kind of the, the final, the sixth and final principle, or depending on where you want to put it, of context. You're, you're understanding your context, the context of the business you're in and preparing a more resilient business, both environmentally due to all of these things you're seeing and improving in your soil. You're, you're more resilient to weather-related storms. And financially, you're, you're creating an adaptable, resilient system that allows you to shift directions dependent on whatever the market calls for at, at any given time. It's a pretty neat way of doing things yeah with the so the runoff water it started as a financial thing but now now we can be responsible it's it's 2021 we we can say hey if you spread fertilizer on your property you should be responsible for that fertilizer whether it's manure or commercial fertilizer if rain falls on your farm you're responsible for that water uh we we shouldn't be farming the bottom of ditches and having brown water because where we're at, we're only a couple miles from the St. Croix River. And everybody south of us in the St. Croix River has the right to say, hey, I want the river clean outside my town so my kids can enjoy the river. It shouldn't be fair that if I go out east of our house to the St. Croix River, you can see four, five, six feet down easy. It is clean water. It's beautiful. If you go 40 miles south, the river don't quite look like that. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, and and a lot of those experiments, like I, I, I'm thinking back to some of those experiments you think you talked about that you tried. Some were successful and some were failures. And, and a quote that I heard 
uh, from a farmer when I was doing kind of talking to a different farmer that I just loved was when I, he, he tried something with corn and whatever that particular practice was didn't work for him. And so I asked, you know, do you think it's possible to do? And his response was not no, but not with my current understanding. And I thought that was really uh, insightful. Like, you know, a really good way to look yeah. at that is like, you know, it's not that it's not possible. It's just, I don't understand yet how. And I'm curious with some of the failures that you've experienced, some of the things that you've tried, how is your mindset towards responding to those failures in either a, you know, way to adapt and change or, or I guess in just how have you responded to some of those things and failures? Ooh, that's a good one. I, I am a systematic type thinker. Uh, a diagnoser. I love, so to me, they aren't failures. It's like, okay, that was a, you know, you hate to use the little teaching moment cliche, mm -hmm. but it is, it really is. So we tried corn into alfalfa once. Uh, the alfalfa was too big. When we thought we, when I thought I burnt it back, I kind of just stunted it and the alfalfa would just greened right back up and smothered the corn. So now we know, okay, the next time we do it, we're going to do it again. That, that wasn't a failure. Too many times the, the conventional people are just just like, well, we tried that once in the 80s and it didn't work, so we're just done. Or, or, or they're the same scenario as we were that, well, we tried no-till out of necessity, but um, you can see that we came back through. In the springtime, it's like, yeah, we had to no-till that field, but it was the last one planted, and it was just – horrible conditions, but we no-tilled it. So come fall time, they're like, well, see, that one was the worst yield. See, so it don't work here. Like, no, you 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 got to keep it in the context. So that doesn't mean I can't plant alfalfa in it, or corn into alfalfa. It just means I have to do a better job. But what we're going to do this year, since I don't have a strip-till machine that can make a good, nice berm in a root-bound soil like alfalfa or grass, is I'm going to turn the nozzles on the sprayer. And so instead of having flat fan going with the boom, they'll be 90 degrees roughly to the boom or make a slight V pattern. So we get a really concentrated band of herbicide and the alfalfa in between the 30 inch spacing hmm. can get dinged a little bit. And if it comes back, that's okay. But first we're going to take first cutting. There's way too much money way too much money sitting out there in that beautiful alfalfa to not make some marshmallows, uh, <laughs> roll it up for the individual bales, you know, just make village sure. and then, and then run over it quick with the sprayer herbicide bandit that way. And then go till that corn. And, and then as soon as that corn's up and running, come back in with some oats and radish to just help keep promoting that soil life thing. Uh, and then throughout the years of, of, "Quote unquote failures on the timing is now we've we've learned in corn we can be pretty aggressive on the covers and beans. Um, I wouldn't mind on beans with the some of the soil, some of the fields we're taking over, very low fertility, don't look good on paper. I'd like to come in with beans, maybe even not just one sixty foot swath. It's too easy to do an experiment. Mm -hmm. It's way too easy to try something to learn." And so just take a little three-point spinner spreader and just run down one bean field right away in the spring after the pre-emerge herbicide, the burn down, with some oats. Mm -hmm. Just some simple oats. We know that when we come back at second pass herbicide, that the select herbicide will wipe them oats right out. So we're, we have nothing 
to risk, but maybe in that path of oats, we get another two weeks of something green and growing with the soybeans hmm. and just see if we can't advance our soil health that way. Um, yeah. Well, that just got me kind of, that's really intriguing. And, and when you do these trials, I was kind of curious, what sizes are you typically trying things on? Maybe there are some that are more certain than others and more that are way crazy out there ideas you're trying on, you know, like you said, a 60 foot pass or something. Is there a kind of a standard you like to try to get a decent test on a, on a new practice? I've got a little three acre pasture and a two acre field next to the farm. So it's, it's close to the farmyard. It's convenient. It's easy to get to. So them are where you really try your very first time things. But now that we kind of got an understanding going, it's just really easy to just do that one pass. From the conventional farming side, we've been so trained to, to, to say, well, I need your replicated data to show me how cover crops make an annual return on investment. I'm not so worried about this year that if I do cover crops and my corn doesn't respond five bushels or my beans don't respond five bushels, I don't really care because um, this is a long-term game. We're looking at the fact that immediately on day one, the cost of the cover crops took away the primary tillage practice. And so there isn't that, there's not that cookie cutter approach to it. So I tell the guys all the time, like as you're moving across the field, that last one round with the sprayer or that last one pass down the edge of the field or in the middle of the field somewhere, just shut it off or, or do something at that one spot. Um, but to go to a sprayer with just makes it so easy. So if I'm moving across the field, I know one sprayer with is three planter passes. Mm-hmm. Um, in that one sprayer with, I can do one broadcast, one round with a broadcaster up and back, keep it a little bit tight, stay within that 90 feet. And the experiment's up and running. You literally flick a switch while going across the field to start an experiment. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, no better time than today to try these things with the technology we have available. Yeah, yeah. I, I always laugh. And so even if you had to put a stake in the ditch, you mm-hmm. know, to remind yourself of where it is at, because you come, you might come back with a tractor without GPS. So you're just like, okay, at that stake, you know, I had you know, 36 rows over and, and, and you spread your cover crops or, or whatever fertility test you're doing or anything. And same. So then that same, we can stop doing tillage right there. We can lift up, we can jump to the other side, we can resume tillage if we're trying a, a no-till experiment or covers, whatever it is. It's just so easy. So now last year we went hog in last year, you had 600 acres of cover crops. We spent more on cover crop seed than we did on corn seed, which seems wow. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it seems ridiculous, but that the long term is that okay. We've already seen the proof that we can reduce herbicide. Like we've we know that we can now live without primary tillage. Um, strip tills still a handy tool, kind of weaning off some fields all these positive things, like there's no question in my mind. I, I, I don't have to have side-by-sides anymore for myself because we can already see the end result. And the end result is that we don't need to rely on the commercial side that we're, we're going to get it. We're, we're going we're gonna, to, 
be the Gabe Brown of Minnesota, <laughs> along with many other farmers that are doing this stuff. Sure. It, you know what I mean? There, there's yeah. guys way ahead of me on this yeah. um, that, that are quite a few hours south. Um, that, that's the other funny part is my location. People mm. always laugh. Um, I always joke with the farmers from central Minnesota or southern Minnesota when they're like, well, where's your area at? And I'm like, you know, God's country up there, up by, up by Hinkley, you know, where corn production literally ends. Then they just laugh. We've never heard of that being God's country before. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, it it definitely provides its unique challenges, and and it's awesome just to hear, like you're saying, if you can do it in those areas with your challenging soil types, with your environment as far north as you are, that really there's not much excuses for us folk down no. south in, in the uh, no. tropical side of the state. And but you know, and every area is going to have their own unique challenges, but. Uh, and, and that's where that context comes into place is, you know, analyzing your context and, and how can I apply this on my farm, but the principles are applicable everywhere. The practices Correct. may look slightly different, but the principles are applicable everywhere. And, and I want to uh, ask a little more on your livestock side too, because I know you, you've talked about bringing them back after getting out of dairy close to 20 years ago. Now uh, you brought them back and what was the driving force behind that? And, and how are you implementing the livestock onto your farm? So the the driving force was to to keep moving the farm. We're just going to be honest about the territory. Is beef is a great opportunity for money here. Uh, this isn't Iowa. Um, we can't always count. I can think back in the next in the last ten years, four of them years, we were lucky to to get a crop. Or so so statistically speaking, or odds are, or if I was a gambling man, the cows just fit in really well. But I don't want to have that old typical thing where we just throw the cows out on a pasture and then in June and July, we're already hauling hay to them. So they're going to be another cash crop. They're rotating across the farm just like any other cash crop. If we can do three years of corn, I can do three years of pasture. Then they move. And then we put in a grass crop or a corn crop, something that can utilize the nitrogen behind them take advantage of that and be a very low input, high return crop and, and just boop, 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 boop. Um, and so simply behind, behind a small grain, we can already get our grasses and, and legumes and pasture seeded. So then next year you can bring the cows to that field and, and keep that rotation going. So then hopefully someday the only field that corn goes into will either be behind a cow or behind a legume for the nitrogen credits um, to keep that cost of production down. But the other great thing about cows is, so we got some pretty highly variable soils. So a few hundred feet over there, you've got yellow clay, tight, just, just gets hard and dry in the summertime type stuff, but it can grow a really good crop. So, down there, let's bring in the grasses and stuff to try and heal that soil. But the knobs on top, you know, when you got a half a percent or 1% organic matter, zero fertility, let's just mob graze up there. Instead of moving across that whole pasture thematically, let's kind of variable rate, quote unquote, the cow. So that spot is really low on fertility. Well, then let the cows stay there. And if we have to haul hay in, and so you're adding your P and K from the hay you're hauling in 
and they're running it through the rumen, you, you, you know, really heal that soil. And, and then that pasture is still feeding. So it's, you know, that good spot of pasture, it don't need much healing. Well, that's the hay you bring to the top of the hill, feed the cows to really set that up. And so they're really an integral part of the, the cropping system to just keep moving it forward. And then the market opportunity. I mean, you know, when you're when you're getting a couple grand for each animal, it, it it cash flows on a per acre basis quite a bit better. Sure. So is direct is direct marketing then uh, a big part of your marketing plan for the livestock? Yeah, yeah. I right now we just sell them as halves or holes, mm-hmm. and you, you know, just like every beef guy, you just drop the steer <laughs> up at the butcher, and the consumer then calls the butcher and pays them directly. Um, I would like, I want to look into a five-year goal of having a retail store at the farm instead of, we have to build a little more grain bin, uh, type system just for the grains, Mm -hmm. but instead of going so big on grain bin expansions, let's, let's pull that back a little bit. And I'd rather invest that last grain bin money into a retail store on the farm because I'm only a mile from Highway 70, and we're only a couple miles off of 35. Hmm. So you got sure. hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people on a weekend going north, and you got tens of thousands of people going east, yeah. and they're all literally driving right by us. Sure, we'll put a retail store up there, and you don't have to sell a whole lot of. You don't need hundreds of people each weekend. I only need a dozen people. You got local restaurants. You, you got you know, nursing homes and, and just tons and tons of people love meat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in Minnesota, you got the, I just met a fellow from the Hmong community and the Hmongs love, love USA beef. Yeah. They can't get enough of it. And sure. uh, he, he laughed and he's like, you, I, I will be back. <laughs> uh, they, they love beef and they are, are a major consumer. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And just hearing it, like I keep coming back to this idea of what you're doing on your farm of like building resiliency. I mean, you talked about with building in your soil health that your soils are able to withstand those, you know, those, uh, those heavy rainfalls and those different natural impact, you know, incidences that you have to face. You're talking about the financial or the adaptability aspect of resiliency and that if you have opportunities like right now where grain prices are high, that you have the ability because of, you know, the diverse enterprises to switch from one to maybe crops or the, uh, with the livestock, again, you have the ability to switch from crops back to, to a pasture-based system, if that's an opportunity. And, and then by building out a direct market and by marketing things at a premium, and rather than having one customer of the sales barn, you've got ton, tens, <laughs> dozens, hundreds of customers, you know, buying meat, you're creating a more resilient marketing system. And it's really just an awesome story of what you're building. Thank you. It's just a, it just is really, really neat. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss out on is realizing that this resiliency is, you know, important and that we should be uh, building that into our system and not just, you know, almost hoping for things to work out or counting on something to buy, save us if something goes wrong, that we should be building in resiliency plans into our own businesses and enterprises. Yeah. You said hope. You said hoping. And that is my one pet peeve. Of, of when we were conventionally farming is what do we do every spring? What does every farmer do? 
well, let's hope we have a good market plan. Let's hope we have good weather. Let's hope we have a good harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so we can at least pay our bills back. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, how about we stop hoping and, and start acting and doing? Yeah. Take control. It's our business. Uh, yeah. Fear. Fear. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It was a major motivator for us. Um, like I said, we are close to the river. Uh, knowing that, you know, five years ago, if we would have said, hey, we're going to have a buffer law, neonicotinoid regulations and and uh, nitrogen management rules, people in Minnesota would be like, nah, never happened. <laughs> now we say, hey, it's just a matter of time before like other states uh, where we're regulated, not already in my watershed district, they are already talking about just doing a little more enforcement of existing laws and rules. So right there is going to be a major thorn in some people's side. And it, it should be. I don't believe we need regulations. We, we should be able to do a better job as farmers. But if guys refuse to change, the regulations are coming. We, we know looking at the rest of the world and how regulations move, they're coming to us. So fear's been a big driver of my part to just stay ahead of, of them. And so that was why we got water quality certified. Hmm. And now it's to the point like, you know, okay, well, we, we did this out of fear. We saw this positive result. Now we're moving hmm. forward out of excitement. Yeah. And, and maybe just share what, for anyone who doesn't know what that water's that egg water quality certification program. It's a mouthful, uh, but share what that pro- program was and, and uh, what it means to you guys on your farm. So the local water quality organization, we're in the, I'm in the lower St. Croix watershed district of my county. And so the water quality association is looking at areas that are very high um, in phosphorus levels in waters, and our whole area is very high in water levels. It's not all from the farmers, but we're the ones that take the blame. And so they started talking to us, like, would you like to be certified? Like, I don't know, I, whatever. <laughs> I, I never thought about it, you know what I mean? Sure. And then they explained uh, what their goal is, and, and the goal is just to simply educate farmers to reduce runoff and erosion, and keep nutrients in their farm better. And at first it sounds like hippie talk, like, ah, I don't want to, you know, the conventional farmers, like stupid government kind of stuff. But sure. ultimately it's your money. That, mm-hmm. Like, wait a minute, you guys are going to help me learn how to keep my phosphorus money, my nitrogen money on my farm better? Yeah, I'll learn. Mm-hmm. And so I started working with them and and learning from them. And, and then it was an easy process. It was literally just a 10 minute interview, answer some questions, and then they take all the paperwork back and, and do everything. And, and once you get certified, then when the buffer laws came down, I'm exempt. I have like a 10 year exemption. Our whole farm is a buffer. I can farm right up to my ditches uh, next to any waterway because the whole farm is a buffer. And we're not doing tillage, so there's nothing, and, and we're, we're banding and placing fertilizer. So there's, in theory, nothing's getting into our waterways. And so it, if you open your mind a little bit, there's people out there that will help you yeah. do better. 
And and that's exactly what that is for is like you said, just to help you, they provide technical assistance. I think there's even a little financial assistance uh, and then that exemption, which hopefully, you know, these farmers like us that are trying to improve our soils, if something comes down that shows to be better, you know, maybe we do it out of choice because we recognize that as an opportunity to improve, but it, it is nice yeah. to know that we have that exemption uh, in a world that maybe looks like it may be moving more towards regulation, but uh, that's just awesome. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. And we're sort of running out of time here, but I do want to ask one question uh, before we wrap up and stuff for, uh, from you. And that that's kind of, this started, I think you said 2013 or 14. So just on seven, eight years ago now. And looking back, what do you wish you had known then when you started? Like, what do you know now that you wish you had known what you started? <laughs> Um, or I guess another way you could look at that is for a person getting started on this today, what would be some of your best tips for them? Uh, if, if I, if a young farmer came up and said, I would like to get into farming, um, what, what would you recommend? I would say, do not borrow money for grain bins, corn planters, tractors. I would say, learn how to grow, uh, in Minnesota, I would say, learn how to grow grad, um, garlic and uh, asparagus and lettuce there is massive markets for that i would say learn cattle learn sheep learn grasses because there is a tremendous market for that without going into such debt and without falling into that program of needing to compete with your neighbors um you know cheap plug for for sustainable farmers association <laughs> I, I i work with several of the other guys and it's so cool that everybody sells beef, but it's not like, well, what are you pricing your beef at? Because I'm going to undercut you 50 cents. It's like, oh, you're at $4? Well, I'm at $4. All right, have a good day. Yeah. You know, we yeah. work together. Oh, I'm out of pork. Can I get some pork from you? It, it's farmers working together. And yeah. I, I would, we don't have the, boy, I feel bad for a guy starting from scratch today because we, we kind of started from scratch. We we didn't walk into an establishment. We had to buy we had to buy and rent every acre we got. We had to buy and fix every piece of equipment we had. Our first disc chisel was we welded up. We bought an old chisel plow and an old disc and welded them together. That was our first disc chisel. <laughs> I, I I would tell a kid even if you want to do row crops, figure out the soil health side, that is going to save you so much money in the long run. I got so much money into tillage and horsepower. And then look for, um, we've got companies in Minnesota that are looking for farmers to grow specialty peas and soybeans for fiber and protein uh, products. There, there's plenty of niche markets that, you know, I've got neighbors that they were doing this stuff before it was trendy that kids through college on 40 acres you know mm -hmm. they, they they didn't have a big fancy combine to show off and big tractors and all this to look really cool on social media um but my god they they kept a roof over their kids heads and fed their family on that 40 acres and it can be done today and so that's where we're heading is that quest like I heard some other guys joking about the X9, like, oh yeah, we gotta get the X9, you know, mocking. And uh we're looking at it now, like, yeah, I don't, I don't really, if more land comes our way, great. Uh joking with a farmer out in central Minnesota, he says, Well, if you want to stop at a thousand acres, what about if you're offered another 500? I said, Great, I can just grow that many more pasture acres. I can mm -hmm. run and buy cows. 
for that extra mm-hmm. acre. And, mm-hmm. and just we're it's kind of weird how it's I used to as a kid used to just dream of the day where you could have this big beautiful line of equipment yeah and it sheds and and all this and just run the county on acres and now it's like why mm-hmm. why I love the fact that when it becomes the evening in the springtime you shut stuff off I go home and have dinner with my wife while we're both awake it'll be there tomorrow we're up early the next day and we'll just do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. It, it, it don't have, you don't have to hibernate in a tractor for three weeks. Planting <laughs> done. Yeah. I know. I know. Crazy, crazy. No, you're right on. I had the same, when I was graduating high school, all I wanted to do was crop farm. And now I'm totally the opposite. I'd want to run a pasture operation. I don't want to have a single, oh. you know, the only equipment on this farm I'd love to have would be a four wheeler. Cause I'm not quite to the point where I'm going to walk out to the cows every day. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, you're right. It can be done in other ways. And it's pretty cool to hear how farmers are doing that. And and I want to let you have a moment here just to share how people can reach out to you or find you. I know you mentioned your YouTube channel. Any ways that if people want to learn more about what you're doing, where you would direct them to? Uh, on YouTube, I just searched John Stevens, Maple Grove Farm. Uh, I, I built a forum. My timing was poor. It's soil-man.com. At the time I made it, the regular ag forums were just violent, brutal against anybody talking soil health. <laughs> sure. I did not know that there was 45 other Twitter, Instagram, Facebook groups on soil health. So I don't know how long I'll keep that forum going if it don't pick up traffic soon. But for sure. now, people can go there and start their own conversations. Uh, sure. Otherwise, just John Stevens on Facebook. I don't do Twitter and Instagram anymore. I'm mm. sorry. no you gotta have limits there's you know there's enough out there that you could spend all day online if you really wanted to so it's probably good that you limit yourself yeah Uh, yeah Yeah. so the youtube channel they they just leave a comment on the youtube channel i do my best to get back to them uh and we do host a farm show uh your famous kent solberg comes over and uh (laughs) troy salzer and many other great people from minnesota uh, come to it and uh and we it's just two years in a row even with covid you know we had almost 70 some people and two years in a row we had the greatest it is the first year was just big beautiful broads and last year pulled pork oh man nice. yeah i don't know what we're having for this year but <laughs> oh, that, i love it farm, yeah, yeah yeah that's awesome Well, thank you so much, John, for sharing your story with us today and all of your wisdom. I I look forward to seeing more about what you what you continue to experiment with and how you fail and get back up and try again and make things work. And, and, you know, there's we need more folks out there willing to share their stories because that's how we're going to get better as an industry is by sharing our stories. And so I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me. That was great fun. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.